0: We don't employ practices; we manage ecological processes. We use practices to do that, but we're we're managing our eco- ecological processes. What happens then is I'm sitting here watching uh, sand and dust blow from from all across uh, you know our area, and we're not blowing. So I think as an ag industry in general, not just grazing lands, but especially grazing lands, historically we have presented ourselves as The the reason we're important and the reason we're special is because of how hard we work and how wholesome we are, which is great. But I don't think society cares. I mean, um, you talk to a um, a carpenter, a house builder and tell you tell them how hard you work and and they will say, she'll say, okay, great. I, I do too.
1: Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating, and follow. And help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy everybody! Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herd Mates Sodcast. I'm pleased today to be joined by Rob Cook. Rob is someone who comes from the Panhandle region of Texas, doesn't live there now though, does he? That's just where you grew up, is that correct?
0: I grew up and, and I'm, I'm back back now, back in the, in the
1: Panhandle region. You made it back home, excellent. Back home. Um, you're the vice chair of the National Grazing Lands Coalition. You're also a member of the Society for Range Management. Uh, any other, well, Western Seedsman, I, I saw some notice here recently, congratulations. Yep. Um, you can convey those into the family. Um, so, y- you're currently working in a seed company, and so what? What kind of seeds?
0: Sure. Yes. currently, I'm the uh, director of business development for for Bamert Seed Company in Muleshoe, Texas, and uh, we produce and then clean and, uh, and, and develop custom blends uh, of native grasses, forbs and legumes for the ag industry, reclamation industry, wildlife habitat. Um, but basically to, to go back uh, to, to reestablish or to enhance grazing lands and then wildlife habitat. But, mm-hmm. Sure, so we, we have a farm here, here in Mule Chute uh, that we produce about 90% of the, of the seed that, that we sell, we produce ourselves on our farm here in Milshue and then another farm the Northeast of Amarillo. And so, so the
1: seeds produced on your farm by your operation, you're not contracting the production from other farmers.
0: Correct. There's, there's few, there are a few strategic species that we just can't, uh, can't grow, uh, here in, in our area. Uh, yeah, because of climatic and strategic species that we do contract, but uh, I said 90% of what we grow, I mean, excuse me, what we pro, what we sell, we produce. And then uh, we have state-of-the-art uh, seed conditioning facilities, we bring in and clean those and bag back, back them up as, as individual species, and then we will uh, develop a, bit, a blend based off of uh, soil types, ecological sites and, 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 and goals of, of, of the project, blend those uh, species together and sh- ship them out. And uh, we, we, we sell seed all over, all, all over the Southern half of the U.S. and uh, a few uh, other countries, Mexico and China, but majority of what we sell is in the Southern half of the U.S. Uh, Texas, New Mexico, Oklahoma, Kansas, uh you know kind of kind of the main ones but we pride ourselves on on having an, and we strategically hire folks that have the background to be able to uh select the right species and develop that blends that goes go in, into those areas uh, where, where they're adapted to so we'll produce about 125 different species and varieties uh and and to, to try to, and try to match uh, every area uh, that, that we sell into. So Texas alone, we've got four different varieties of side oaks grama uh, to match uh, the different regions within Texas. So we make sure that what's, what's leaving uh, you know, our facilities will, will, will work in the area we're selling it to.
1: Oh, interesting. So um, you mentioned reclamation industry. What, what exactly is that?
0: Sure, so a, a, big, a, big, a big chunk of our seed goes to uh, the energy industry where they're doing reclamation projects from a pipeline project, uh, the oil and gas, um, solar farms, wind farms. Um, so kind of kind of the unique thing about that in a lot of these areas is um, where that, say where a pipeline went through, if you look along the right-of-way of that pipeline and across these pastures, those are the only places on some of these uh, farms and, and ranches where um, or, or these areas where there's native species present that were once there and you could see them start to move out into um, into the pastures and become become a vector uh, to, to reintroduce some of those species so it's a you know it's very rewarding that we might be selling to a, an, an energy project but it, you know in, in the long run we're, we're helping uh, grazing lands across the US with, with our product
1: that is interesting. I had never thought of that, and that's that's a really nice, um, unanticipated benefit of that. Um, you. So we've already mentioned grazing lands, grasslands you're on i think what would be called certainly the the southern part of the great plains and parts of that territory that you outlined and maybe transitioning into others like the 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 coastal plain and then maybe more of the southwest desert or inner mountain areas Um, tremendous diversity as you were describing that you have all these different species or would the word ecotype be right for some of these?
0: You're correct, yeah. Um, So we we do have um, the normal varietals, you know, a a variety that was released by ARS or the Plant Materials Center that everybody's kind of familiar with. But we do uh, have started transitioning into doing um, local ecotype specific varieties of of those different species. So, Uh, we, we partner with uh, a Texas Native Seed Program, and they're we're a, uh, a licensed uh, grower for them. And so, they've developed these selections for different ecotypes, eco regions uh, across the state of Texas. Uh, so, their species will fit uh, those those certain ecotypes, and the genetics come from there. And they're, they're we're concerned about you know the genetic diversity and maintaining that and those selections and so those, those species are selected to be uh to pro- be produced and then sold back into those areas uh that that they're adapted to specifically so really it becomes a smaller area as compared to the you know our, our varietals um and you know there's there's a, there's historically uh, the varietals have served the industry reclamation ag industry very very well, um, and they still do a great job. Certain species that struggle with persistence in, in different areas, little blue stem might be a good example of that. The varieties work very good across the entire state, but they might not persist as long as as we would like. So uh, you know these local ecotypes are. are Variety of a, a, a selection of little blue stem is selected from there and evaluated and and, and then released and then sold back.
1: So, are you one of these people that goes out and visits old churchyards and undisturbed areas, uh, you know, from old settlements to find some of these species?
0: So, yeah. So, fun, funny enough, you know, I, I, I'm not in, involved in the selection, maybe. Of, of these species for these releases, the TNSs. But uh, I, I used to work for uh, the Natural Resource Conservation Service, and 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 I, I, uh, I took care of a program called uh, the, the National Resource Inventory, where I would go out and and do vegetative transects and look at these, and and a lot of that uh, data would go into these ecological ecological site descriptions. Um, and those site descriptions have species lists and compositions based off of uh, historical, you know, maybe climax planks. And a lot of that data was taken from cemeteries or, or old area pristine areas that it's kind of kinda hard to find. But so yes, yeah, my, my wife kinda gets upset with me when we go on vacation because I spend more time looking at grasses than a lot of times than I do other things. She's telling me you're on vacation.
1: It's an occupational hazard.
0: Yeah, that's right. I had a, so, a colleague, I had a colleague uh, and a mentor. Uh, he he said, "We're not tree huggers; we're grass huggers." <laughs> yes,
1: yeah. Well, so okay, let's talk about the. Clearly, we're 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 involved with grasses, which are the most important group of plants in the world. We all understand that, um, and and we have these things that are called grasslands across North America. Uh, but they differ as you go from east to west, and and so, can you kind of describe that transition from the Atlantic coast, and then as far west as you want to talk about?
0: Sure. Yeah, and I, I can briefly maybe at a at, you know at a like thirty thousand foot foot view. Uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of our, our grazing lands uh, in the east are. Um, may maybe converted to, to pasture land or or introduced species and in, in a lot of monocultures. And there's a lot of pocket prairies, I think is what they refer to in a lot in the east that still have those original uh, plant communities of, of native species that we could we could still see. But over the years and as the settlement moved west, um, some of those were converted to farmland and converted to more of a pasture land uh, setting. Uh, you know so there's there's more monoculture the further west you go um uh, of course the, the the last time uh that we've we've since those lands have been settled uh a lot of those lands maybe have weren't uh, conducive to farming or or crop production in the past and they were left in their their na- native habitat and of course they've become more arid uh, a lot of times you know to, to the west and that uh, maybe production agriculture wasn't as uh Appealing or possible or, or, or easy to accomplish, but uh, you know the 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 largest land use in in the in the U.S. is grazing lands. That's considered pasture land and rangeland, range land. You know, compared to forest land and uh, crop land. You know, I would I would argue that our forest lands and our crop lands can be considered uh, grazing lands, and uh, should should be um, grazed whenever possible. To you know to to help with the energy cycle, nutrient cycle, all those ecological processes. Uh, grazing animals are part of those. Uh, but the pasture land and, and the rangeland make up a large chunk. I think there's uh, 770 million acres of rangeland uh, with, within the U.S. That's uh, a, it's a lot of um, a lot of area and a lot of benefits that, that come off that for society. And that's, like I said, not, it's not even accounting or pasture land or graze spores or graze
1: crop mm-hmm. So in your, one of the, well, so many people will point to all of that grazing land and they'll say, well, look at how much more human edible crops we could produce if we didn't have that land being in livestock production. And your answer to that would be, a lot of our rangeland, a lot of our grazing lands
0: are not uh, uh, adaptable, maybe to, to crop production, human human food production. Whether it's from soil type, um, the geology of the of the area, the climate of the area, it's it's just not suitable uh, for, you know, the production of of, of human uh, crops. Um, so. You know their their use, the w- the way that we're able to utilize them as society is is through a, a grazing animal, uh, whatever whatever that is, or, or 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 wildlife, or or both. So that's so that's how those those lands are productive uh, for society society in general, and that's how we can utilize those is through the grazing animal because they just don't. Farming the side of the hill uh, and highly rollable soils, even if you could make it uh, work. Uh, what's the saying? Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Um, so it's some of those highly rollable, uh, you know, with a lot of uh, topography are better adapted to be in, in a grassland, a grazing land situation and utilized by a grazing animal and wildlife, pollinators, open space.
1: Mm-hmm. watershed management all those issues and and i'll get to ecosystem services and as a topic in just a second but one of the points that i would like to remind people of is too many people today in general and in agriculture or when they talk about agriculture in specifics talk about things as if it's either or as if we could have crop agriculture without animal agriculture, and sometimes the reverse. Um, So I try to point out how integrated livestock agriculture is globally in our food systems. Um, And that that can look different when you're talking about farmers in sub-Saharan Africa versus agriculture in North America but even in the seed production industry, certainly in the Willamette Valley where I live, we grow a little seed and we graze a lot of sheep on those seed fields wow. in, in the you know, late fall, winter, and early spring. So we have that integration. Do, do you do the same thing in your seed production or?
0: Yeah, we, we do. Um, we, we have a, a cow-calf herd. We have a registered Angus, Angus herd. And uh, we we bring in stalkers, we bring in uh, young growing animals every year to graze also. So um, we we will graze uh, normally. We'll graze after after harvest with our cow calf herd. Um, that that standing forage uh, it's usually dormant at that point. It's 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 really good for our uh, our mama cows. Uh, you know the goal in 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 that situation is just to maintain body condition. We're not having to have extremely high uh, quality forage, uh, to, to put pounds on uh, like a growing animal, like you would in a stocker situation. You know, and, and in our opinion, um, the grazing animal is, is part of uh, those ecological processes. And that's what we're trying to manage when even on our seed production fields, you know, uh, you can't complete the nutrient cycle without a grazing animal. You can't complete the energy cycle w- w- without a grazing animal. You know, you, you think about that entire field being a solar panel. And uh, if, if we didn't have the grazing animals part of that cycle, and so you, you can't complete it. You know, historically, we, we probably hate a lot of it. Uh, it's a lot more effective, efficient uh, to, to use that grazing animal. Uh, to, to remove, to, to remove that, that standing hay, you know, that, that, that we kind of need for a seed production setting. There's also some biological benefits introducing that biology into the system uh, that you don't get uh, without the grazing animal. Um, you know, we're, we're really concerned and, and really focus and manage uh, not only what's going on above ground, but below ground. And the, the herd below ground, all of our uh, biology that's happening below ground, and, and in my opinion, that's not possible really without uh, a grazing animal, unless you're spending a lot of time and energy uh, kind of trying to introduce uh, that biology. Um, we also use prescribed fire uh, every year as, as part of our management techniques. Um, so, you know, it resets our nutrient cycle. Um, it helps with some of our pests and weed management, uh, especially all of our pest management. And, and these species, the majority of these species that we grow, you alluded to earlier on the, from the, the high plains, the majority of these species evolved under a fire uh, and, and grazing system historically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's part of it's part of their life cycle, how they evolve and it's, it's a really a great benefit to us to, to, to be able to do that uh, for a lot of different uh, ways. We also, like I said, uh, we'll run some stockers, run some yearling animals, uh, you know, for, for gain, uh, we will retain our uh, our, our calf crop um, and, and move them over into our stocker operation and then bring in some outside animals. Um, and we'll do that on part parts of our, our production that we have in small grains or a summer annual. Um, you know, if we take out a production field for whatever reason, uh, whether it be it's just, it's been there a while and it's, uh, you know it's a perennial system so weed management uh it, it producing these we have to produce them in monocultures to blend so weed management is a is a large a large part of our our everyday uh a job so a perennial system that can get hard uh, because if you think about weed it what a weed is is it's really just a plant out of place so in a blue grama field a uh, big blue steel becomes a weed. <laughs> Nobody else uh, think, can, you know, really normally thinks of it that way. So sometimes we have to take those production fields out or, or maybe um, the demand's just not there for a species. Uh, so we look into our magic ball and try to decide what's going to happen in three or four years and we, we take that production field out. So we, ha- we'll, we, will, we will farm it. We will put it in small grains or, or like I said, a, a summer annual and to, to clean it up to make sure we get rid of that, that seed bank before we go into our next, our next crop. And I mean, we, we will harvest those from time to time, but we would just assumed, uh use a growing, a growing animal on those for the reasons we, we just discussed earlier and uh, just more efficient. And it's dual purpose, a lot of it, but so, um, you know, it, it doesn't make much sense to us uh, not to incorporate livestock in, into our operation.
1: So one, one of the things that you might do is, for example, if you're growing winter wheat, is you might graze cattle on those fields. And then if you want a grain crop, remove those animals before we start getting the, the head of the plant elongating up the stem. And, and then you so there's another example of integrating livestock production in, with crop production um, in our part of the world, being Western Oregon, we have a lot of seed, what we call seed straw, the residue that's baled off of the fields after the the seed is combined out at harvest. Um, and then we also have, in addition to the grazing, in addition to the seed straw, we have um, screening pellets that that material can be made into a feed resource and fed to animals. So, in those three ways, even just looking. Just looking at seed production alone, we can see the integration of livestock. Um, And so it's. I think it's really important for people to understand that there are these interactions between livestock agriculture and and crop agriculture. And we can't just rip them apart and say we've got one or the other. In addition to what we talked about earlier, where most of this rangeland and pasture land you mentioned was non arable land it wasn't suitable for cultivation and we do have a history in this country of cultivating lands that shouldn't be and bad things happen that's for another episode perhaps but people are familiar with the dust bowl which is right where you are is that not correct
0: it, that is correct and um it, you know there's 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 still um there's still times where in this part of the world it's no secret that things kind of do remind you of the dust bowl and uh we still have a ways to go and i think that's that's part of uh, you know nat glc's mission is is the education and 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 bringing together these member organizations to 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 try to get get that uh message out um but it is very refreshing to be sitting here i i, I live on the farm right now and be sitting here and because of we don't employ practices we manage ecological processes we use practices to do that but we're we're managing our ecological processes what happens then is I'm sitting here watching uh sand and dust blow from from all across uh you know our area and we're not blowing and 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 we're not constantly having to break out the sand fibers, which is a plow that you know that that's used in the area to stop the sand from blowing because we're managing our ecological processes and and when when those processes are functioning correctly our soil erosion uh, is is held to a minimum uh, just just from our, our normal everyday management
1: i was introduced to the term snurt in north dakota Snurt, <laughs> snow and dirt yep, uh, what, yeah <laughs> What you see in the ditches next to the highways. Um, And so this is, it's not merely in what many people, myself included until a couple of years ago, think of as the Dust Bowl because North Dakota had its own during the, the dirty thirties. I mean, it, it wasn't only in that South eastern Colorado, southwestern Kansas, and adjoining state region. Um, so you, you mentioned the National Grazing Lands Coalition, NatGLC. Um, so first of all, it's a national organization, but that's, it's a coalition of state. Uh, I think it's lo- at that level, or are there lo- more local than the state organizations?
0: Yeah, so so sure the the, the national GLC uh, ca- kind of came about. I think it was in, in 1991. A group of um, uh, of of six different organizations and uh, you know state agencies, national agencies came together and decided um, you know we need to form a coalition to ensure that technical assistance was still provided on our nation's grazing lands. We felt that maybe. Um, You know, at the time, and it's still, and still now, a lot of times, a lot of the money for research, a lot of the research, a lot of uh, program dollars and and technical assistance dollars goes, goes to uh, other agriculture um, uh, pursuits, uh, cropland and that kind of thing. So just to, just to make sure to ensure that our grazing lands have that technical assistance. So in the beginning, it was the uh, American Farm Bureau. and and I'm gonna read this to make sure I don't leave anybody out, but we had the American Farm Bureau, the American Forage and Grassland Council, the National Association of Conservation Districts, National Cattlemen's Beef Association, and then the Society for Range Management. Those were the the founding organizations. And since then, uh, the dairy industry, the National Farmers Union, uh, the Noble Research Institute, The Soil and Water Conservation Society and the Public Land Council um, have been brought on and they're they're kind of part of the steering committee. So the the board of of NatGLC is made up of of members that represent each one of those uh, organizations. So I, I represent the Society for Range Management, involved Society for Range Management. So that's that's how that steering committee and that, that board's put together. The unique thing about that is is all of our board members are producers, um, are, are per, per, you know produce uh, food and fiber on our nation's grazing land, and that's what's real. One of the real important aspects of of our coalition, to me, is is it's producer led, and and so so the the GLC group represents all those organizations, like I said, is, is a, national, um, a national coalition. There are state coalitions. Uh, the 24 different states have coalitions uh, uh, and, and some former from, from very, very active right now to continue to become more active, but 24 different statewide coalitions. Um, and, and, and the great thing about that is those state coalitions are producer-led also. And so their, their organizations are whatever they need to be, uh, the organization of either structure of their organizations or whatever they need to be uh, to match uh, what their state needs. Um, so Texas has different regions. There's regional coalitions uh, within Texas that have their own board, you know, such a diverse big state, um, it really works uh, for them and it's really needed to have those different coalitions. So, a regional coalition will have board members, producers within that region to to, to help with that. Um, other states uh, may maybe not as much um, diversity or smaller geographical areas, and you know it's 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 sometimes it's hard to get uh, the leadership. And, and if you try to divide it all up, it wouldn't work as well. So they might have one, but it's whatever works for that state, and it's state led and producer led. Um, So the the national organization just helps support uh, in any way possible those those state coalitions um, from, um, you know, working with with grant money, trying to try to develop grant monies to help with with different um, uh, projects, you know, within those states to just being an advocate nationally to to help with the goals of all of us to to help uh, support, uh, you you know, what those those state-led coalitions are doing.
1: So, uh, it's it, it is unique, I think, that or certainly important that the organizations be um, directed and run by producer members. I, I think that that does um, contribute something important to it. But I'm wondering if there's an opportunity for people who aren't producers to become involved for education or even to help um those local coalitions engaged in in the work in those areas
0: yeah you know i think there there's there's always a um they're, they're, we're, we're all about partnerships uh, you know, from a national level to, to, to the state level. Um, so I think there's always opportunities for, for different group people that aren't involved in, in, in agriculture directly to partner with a state coalition. Um, what, one of the big things uh, personally for me is, is I'm excited that um, seems like there's a trend for folks to want to understand where their food comes from. You know, I think, uh, I think sometimes, um, I think sometimes there's, there's more of a wants to understand than there actually is an understanding of what it actually takes to produce that food and fiber. But I think we're getting there, but that's a huge thing to me. And I, and I think the education of our, of our school children on, on where their water comes from, where their food comes from, is a great place that, that people that aren't and in directly involved in the ag industry to partner with um, with a, a local coalition to, to try to you know bring that education and that advocacy and the communication of proper stewardship to those to those school children so they understand where their food comes from and, and why grazing lands are important and and you know they'll be They'll be will be voters one day, and I think we're we're, we're seeing that level with with more of our shift to urban populations. Than the further they are removed uh, from uh, rural environments where their food comes from, the the less of an understanding there is of, of where that food comes from and the importance of some of our programs and policies on a national and state level, even even a uh, you know a local level to, to you know to to make sure that it's not a detriment to the production of, of the food that they, that, that, that they rely on. So I think there's a, a, a great deal of partnership there. Um, you know, there's, there's always a, you know, I think, uh, a, a, fundraising aspect that every, every, uh, group like, you know, national GLC a state led coalition, um, there, there's, there's always a fundraising aspect of that. Um, but I, I think just being an advocate, uh, is is a big uh, part of, uh, of anything is the advocate for healthy grazing lands and and that, that's a great way to partner uh, directly or indirectly with with these um, with these groups
1: and and the people that are involved in that GLC certainly have the technical background to provide information to help people learn so that they can become informed and then become advocates. Um and I don't want to put a jinx on it, but I understand that uh in about a year you're anticipating a pretty major conference.
0: You bet, yeah. So so every every three years the NAT GLC has their annual conference. So this will be at in, in December 6th through 9 2021, in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, we'll have uh, eight eight in uh, GLC, so our, our eighth conference. Um, one of the really unique things about this conference is the majority of the presentations and, and the learning we do d- during those, you know, four days are, are from producers. Um, there, there's, there's, uh, of course, we have scientists and scientific presentations, but the majority of, of what's being dis- discussed is by producers uh, and hopefully to producers and then also to scientists and under, other industries industry folks you know so that that's a great way to 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 help support is is you know even if you're not uh directly involved don't have uh, grazing animals or live on grazing lands to be a, a part of that and it's it's a great networking experience uh being able to learn from those producers uh from all across the nation you know i'll, I'll pick up a lot that hopefully i can bring back to our grazing uh you, you know our grazing program uh based off of this, those presentations, just speaking with those folks, you know, in the, in, in the hallways and learning from what they're doing. And, you know, and I know other states have st- state uh, state programs also, state st- state conferences uh, going on. Uh, I've, I've attended Texas uh, several times and they've all, all been great, great programs.
1: Hmm. So, well, it's, it's really clear or it should be clear that um, our beef supply is dependent on, a healthy, on healthy grasslands. And as you've said, it's not only dependent, but, but the grasslands themselves are dependent on properly managed beef grazing. So that's, that's a clear advantage and essential role for grasslands. But there are some others, and and I understand that those are kind of lumped under ecosystem services as a category so that when, for example, people are discussing the footprint of or the hoofprint of the beef industry, that these are things that are contributed by the managers, but they don't get compensated for them, but they are a benefit to society. So I think it's really important for people to have an understanding of some of those and how important they are.
0: Sure, yeah, I think you're 100% correct. Historically, um, ag producers have been paid for one ecosystem service, that being food and fiber. Uh, When in reality, they provide uh, many different services for society that that we all need. you know, properly mixed grazing lands provide uh, high quality, clean drinking water. Uh, you know, if you kind of sit back and think about it, um, whether you get uh, water from a lake, a reservoir or an underground auk for a well, that, that raindrop has fallen on grazing land uh, somewhere. The uh, grazing lands produce the majority or, you know, I don't know what percentage it, it is, but produce our drinking water and health, healthy, um, Healthy managed grazing lands have a, a proper hydrological cycle, um, you know, and and so so that's a service that ag producers provide for society uh, that they normally don't get credit for is clean water. Um, biodiversity is another one of those, and we talk a lot about we hadn't really talked on pollinators uh, uh, much, but pollinators is, is a huge is a huge topic, and we're really I think. Uh, Historically, we probably understood it, and maybe that was a knowledge that kind of went by the wayside. I don't think we forgot it. We might have just ignored it a little bit, but how important pollinators are to our entire food uh, uh, production systems, um, you know, from from the get-go. And and so I think the biodiversity with those those pollinator uh, forbs and legumes, you know, what some people consider weeds or wildflowers. Just, they're not just, they don't just look pretty. They, they provide that habitat for pollinators, um, and the habitat for wildlife. And the, the biodiversity above ground breeds biodiversity below ground. All of those different organisms that, that um, live below ground are part of each one of those cycles and the, the ecological processes that we talk about having to manage. So we have to have the right uh, types and combinations of of microbes below ground to make those roots functions to make our our soil have right uh, you know, pore space and the right structure to have the wi- right correct water infiltration the water holding capacity the nutrient cycling uh, you know uh, how how our, our phosphorus and our and our and our nitrogen and our potassium you you think about those are the ones we normally apply to to ag systems. So you kind of set back and think about a, a native rangeland situation where we can produce uh, just so 8,000 8, pounds of forage production per acre without adding a drop of nitrogen to that. How does that happen? You think about produ- production systems a lot of times uh, that those, those you know, amendments, those, those inputs, uh, nitrogen being one of those, it ha- has to be there to produce high levels of forest production. Well, native range system does it, a healthy native range system does it without those uh, inputs. And it's because that nutrient cycle and and all the the microbes above ground are doing their job and and, and making those available to to the plant. So that biodiversity is is very important below ground as well as above ground. you know, a wildlife habitat. I think, um, no matter where you're at, I think the majority of people, uh, kind of enjoy wildlife and understand how important they are to, to, to all of our, um, all of our systems. That's a service that, that properly managed grazing lands, uh, provides as wildlife habitat. Um, and, and, if, if you look at the hunting industry, um, you know, the conservation, hunting conservation, uh, uh, is a, a, a large driver for, uh, you know, for the success of a lot of our species, but a lot of, a lot of that habitat lies on grazing land. Um, so, you know, we, we, we could credit a lot of our, our wildlife habitat to, to the proper management of our grazing lands, uh, along with our sportsmen. Uh, you know, adding those, those dollars for that, and just open space, uh, you know, if, 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 if you live in, see, I lived in, I grew, you say, grew up in the Texas Panhandle, um, small town called Vega, and I moved to San Angelo uh, to go to Angelo State University, and thought I'd move to the city, <laughs> and uh, right after school, I was stationed at San Antonio, and I found out kind of what the city was, and, um, I can understand needing open space. And it is it is a service that we all need. Uh, you know, whether you live in the city or you live in the panhandle, open spaces from time to time is, is good for the soul and good for the blood pressure, uh, basically. Yeah. So uh, that's a service uh, that, that we provide. Um, so I think as an ag industry in general, not just grazing lands, but especially grazing lands, historically, we've presented ourselves as, the, the reason we're important and the reason we're special is because of how hard we work and how wholesome we are, which is great, but I don't think society cares. I mean, um, you talk to a, um, a carpenter, a house builder, and tell you, tell them how hard you work, and, and they will say, she'll say, okay, great, I, I do too. So, w- we have to get away from that historic notion of hard work and unwholesome and, and that's why we're important that's why we're unique and start telling our story about what we actually provide for society which is these ecosystem services which is basically um, a healthy ecosystem a healthy planet and and we it, it, it's it's not one or the other it's not food and fiber production or or a, or a healthy ecosystem it's it's both and, and historically, there's been a lot of good producers that have, have done that, have been able to do both. And so, you know, NAT GLC, we want to make sure that we continue to promote that um, and advocate for the needs of, of these grazing land managers so they can manage those ecosystem services. Yes,
1: yeah, so there's so many threads to pick up. But uh, one thing I'd add um, is the proper management of grasslands aids in fire suppression. Uh, um, And be that forest, you know, mixed forest grassland systems or uh, other open grasslands where you just have too much uh, fuel accumulated. Um, And proper management is important for Limiting invasive weed pressure and lots of issues. Your your point is very well said. I think about we've we in agriculture have wanted credit for things, which okay, it's justified. But maybe we need to rethink it from another perspective. When the majority of people today are not coming from an agricultural background, so. to make it clear the other benefits from appropriate agricultural practices. But one of the things that I wonder about is, um, and and I've seen it in the mission statement that's posted on the NatGLC website about um, resisting the conversion of grazing land into other uses. So, what are the pressures on grazing land for other uses?
0: Sure. Um, so, the, the margin uh, on on a a grazing operations are normally pretty thin, pretty, pretty small.
1: So, by margin, margin you mean
0: margins as uh, far as profit uh, from you know from caught co- your your cost to 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 your profit. Um, so, there's a real temptation. Um, uh, maybe to, to convert to another land use or, or to sell to fragmentation I think fragmentation is a is a, is a big threat um, you know and depending on the year depending on the species uh, uh, maybe conversion to uh, you know farming or something like that could can, can seem more profitable so conversion of, of land is is one of the big ones so a way to combat that is 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 to make it uh, economically viable for a grazing land manager, owner uh, to, to stay on, on that property or to keep it in that land use uh, from from getting a pay, you know, payment from something besides uh, food and fiber, those other ecological services that are provided to society that are, are very important. And, you know, I think there are some examples uh, of that that's happened in, in the past uh, from, a local to a state to you know to national programs where the, these uh, grazing land producers are getting paid for those other eco, ecological uh, ecosystem services. Uh, you know there's, there's, there's been I think some pilots uh, from from companies or different municipalities uh, to to pay uh, the landowners and a lot of them are grazing land uh, landowners in watersheds to make sure that they're managing that, those, you know, those ecological processes to provide clean water. It's a lot, lot more cost-effective um, to, to take that water that's already clean than it is to spend the money to clean it, uh, you know, if, it if it's coming off of those grazing lands and it's not in a pristine condition. Um, and I think there's different, uh, ecosystem service market consortium as a group that's been put together that I think are investigating. And it maybe has some pilots going on on how a free market approach to, to the selling of those ecosystem service market uh, ecosystem services, you know, in and the free market uh, aids uh, the, these these grazing land producers to you know to to, to be profitable uh, for for those services they're providing all of us.
1: And of course, you you know my soapbox, and I would say that the product of ruminant animal agriculture based on healthy grasslands ends up being a fundamental part of a healthy human diet and possibly even a diet that could yield an improvement in public health if we could get that policy all sorted out. But I've I've already done enough episodes on that topic with other people, so we don't need to go there any more than I have. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's also really important because I, I think that these policies do tend to get interwoven and and uh, if people put greater uh, value on that then maybe they'd also put greater value on programs aimed at helping the producers who are producing those uh, and vice versa if you if you don't put value on it then why bother yeah um, so I, I think that if we could have a more holistic view of the entire system from producer through consumer, I think we'd see a lot of these conversations shift. Um, you mentioned um, that you represent uh, the Society for Range Management. Um, and if you could, could you just talk about that organization a little bit?
0: Sure. Yeah. Uh, the Society for Range Management is a professional uh Society organization I've been involved in since college, and um, and you know their their, their goal and, and is it's a professional organization, but it's 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 kind of to bring together uh, the science uh, behind rangeland management. So it consists of of, of producers, um, academics, and, and researchers and it you know it's kind of the goal is to help advance uh, further uh, further the science of rangeland management and, and to advocate for for, for healthy rangelands uh but it's it, you know it's um kind, kind of the same as is as, is as, as nat glc and as far as the connections that i've been able to make and what i've what i've been able to learn by um you know being a part of that group and learning from my peers um, has been has been outstanding has really um, helped advance uh, not only uh, my career but my understanding of of the art and science of rangeland management
1: and and there's now that's a national organization but I think that there's a fair representation from other countries at the at the conferences there's an international rangeland society uh, that may not be its right name Um, and frequently there are joint meetings between well frequently um, when the international grasslands congress has meetings they will often be in conjunction with the international rangeland but i also think in the literature in in the journal you can find articles from research around the world.
0: That, that's correct. Yeah, so, so it does, um, you know, as as, as the uh, professional society for, for rangeland management, it, it, it does. Um, and what's the target is, is, is the journal, uh, Journal of Rangeland Ecology, um, mm-hmm. that you kind of manage that. But you're, you're correct, from all across the world, uh, there's, you know, cement articles for that journal. Um, and they do have um, Certification program for uh, range land managers, um, certified uh, professional range manager, you know, they have a certified uh, con- consulting, uh, you know, certification also. Uh, and not only internationally, but but also there's there's state uh, sections uh, all across all across the nation. Uh, you know, I'm currently served on the board of the Texas section and having been involved with the Oklahoma section. Uh, study for range management. They also have their own uh, conventions and and you know kind of so it kind of the same um, organizational structure to an extent as GLC to get down to a more local level to get more granular. But 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 a great a great, uh, a great uh, organization to be a part of, and I owe a, a lot of my development through my career to 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 being a part of that and being involved in their
1: organization and again a source of information for people who are interested and want to learn more Uh, i know that many of these organizations put out um, resources uh, in addition to a journal uh, to just help people learn because again that's part of their mission Um, so i've asked you a bunch of questions and it's only fair to give you the opportunity to ask me if you have any.
0: Sure, sure. So, so I, I mentioned earlier um, that I'm excited that people seem to be um, interested in, in, in where their food comes from. So um, I think there's a disconnect from that desire uh, to know where their food comes from and to actually uh, start to understand what, what it involves. So part, you know, part of as NatGLC, part of our uh, our goals is to advocate uh, for, for for grazing lands. Um, so how, how do you feel that we could start bridging that gap and bringing people, you know, making them more connected uh, to, to to their food sources? I think that does several things. Among those, uh, helps us to uh, maybe have a, a healthier diet that's more more tied to our. Uh, ecosystem processes if that's if that's uh, the correct way to state that but how, how do uh, groups like ours uh, uh, groups like Bammert seed or anybody that's interested in that how do we, how do we start bridging that gap uh, uh, more effectively
1: great question um, I think one is just make ourselves more widely known and available to have conversations. It's comfortable to stay within our little circle and, you know, and maybe we need to get uncomfortable a little bit by putting our, you know, maybe the appropriate people, not everybody may feel like this is right, but to get out there a little bit. Number two, I think um, my, one of my goals is again, two-way communication. So I think there's a lot for us to learn from each other. And if people only hear it coming one way, that only lasts so long. Um, I think in Missouri, they say, I'd rather watch a sermon than listen to one. Um, so let's see how you actually live it out. Um, when it comes to the diet, I've entertained thoughts of, or, or health in general. I, I'm really trying to become diet agnostic. I, I'm more concerned, how was it that you put it that, it's, it's ecological processes. Is that how you put it? I
0: mean, so ecological
1: processes. So I, I want to get us more aware of the metabolic processes and how you choose individually, because I understand we all have different priorities and, 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 and controlling uh, limitations in our lives. And limitations isn't the right word, but um Realities. Um, so, but if we understand what those processes are, then we can begin to understand what are meaningful metrics of health, and then we could understand: okay, these are trending in a in in an undesirable direction. How might we shift those? And then are we going to do that or not? And I think if groups of people could start educating themselves and doing that, then that becomes powerful evidence. And in some cases, opens the door to lots more conversations beyond that. I mean, if people start to realize, oh, look what these people are doing here, wonder what else they're doing. And that might that might be one way, um, and like I say, just to use the technology that we now have available to us to uh, engage in social media or small clips of video that would you know, show things and explain things in a way that the, the, the general public would, would maybe grasp and understand. So those would be maybe three things that I'd um, offer in response.
0: Throughout my career, it's always been interesting to me. You, you, you know, I, I think we, we have to be careful as an industry to, uh, to say that my healthy plants, my healthy animals, the healthy food I produce is, is better because of the way I did it. It's better than yours because I did it in a different way. Uh, you know, we can't throw stones at each other. And I think um, historically, we've, we've definitely done that in some instances. And um, I think that goes a lot to the misinformation uh, to, to the the to the consumer and to, to society. We, we, we do that to ourselves a lot. So I think that's one pitfall that we have to avoid is, is if we're all uh, doing our, our best in managing ecological processes, um, that my my healthy food is not better than your healthy food because we produce it in a a little bit different
1: way. I I couldn't agree with you more. I think that I I really um, am suspicious of those kinds of marketing claims. And I repeatedly ask some people who've been involved in the human health side for decades, right? you saw benefits in people's health and you were doing it with what was available in the supermarket and at the end of the day we we you know i understand marketing right i, I get it um, but this is about making the food that i believe we all require for health and well-being available and accessible to all the people that we possibly can. And these other claims tend to get in the way of that. And they tend to get in the way of adoption. Well, I can't afford to spend, you know, 3x for this, as opposed to that. And, and also, I try to let people know that, animal agriculture as an industry is being opposed by people who really don't care how you do it. It's that you do it. And that's their fundamental issue is that there should be no animal agriculture. There should be no consumption of animal source food. And we can't afford the division that you mentioned the us and them. And there, I did it. I just did it with an us and them. I just want to not do that as much as possible.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree full heart. And, and I think there's um, there, there, there's a, a, a lot of, of ways to do things correctly. And a, a lot of it comes down to how you fundamentally feel that as a producer, the correct way for you to do things. And, and you know, I, I think I said it before, but if, if we're all, if we're managing our ecological processes correctly, um,
1: there, there's room
0: uh, for, for all of it. So.
1: Well, and if we're if we're doing that right, then we're lowering costs of production, which makes those operations more sustainable. And everyone is going to do that to the best of their ability, given the limitations of the reality of their operation. Um, I, I started 10 years ago writing and talking about something that I call grass-based health. I'm a forage agronomist. Of course, I was impressed with the grass-fed whatever. And then I went and read the studies. And so I'm no longer convinced of those claims. I keep the name in part because ruminant animal agriculture is grass-based. Regardless of how those animals end up being finished, whether they go the rest of their lives on grass or for a relatively short time into some other kind of feeding system, um, I also keep it to remind me of of lessons about you know selection bias and 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 personal bias. It's it's easy for human beings to fall for that. Um, and no, I I I absolutely agree with what you said that that we in livestock agriculture in agriculture can't afford divisions within us um it's it's too important for us to well improve what needs to be improved and help each other do that and then at the same time advocate for so that one we have the support and i think we have it's important to do these things politically, directly. I think it's maybe even more important to do those through the general public and increase their awareness because there's a lot more there than there is of us to go directly. So. Agreed. Wonderful. Well, I, you know, I hope to see you in Myrtle Beach um, and thank you for your time and what you've contributed in this conversation um are you on social media is bamert seed on social media
0: yes bamert seed is on uh, on facebook and instagram and uh, linkedin and uh, nat glc is, is also on, on facebook and, and, and instagram so uh nat glc might be the national grazing lands coalition or national glc uh, if you're if you're searching for those but um I think both groups do a great job on, on social media and getting the word out and see out. And yeah, please, please, please take a look at that and everyone. And I really thank you for the opportunity too. Uh, this, I think it was a great conversation and, and thank you for, for, for what you're doing with, with your platform. And I really appreciate uh, you taking the time and allowing us to to, to be a part of.
1: It. My pleasure. You're more than welcome.